recording studios play a crucial part in the music industry. But in an era where technology has drastically changed access to equipment, has access to studios changed as well? Welcome to the future of what? I'm your host, Portia Sabin, president of the independent record label, Kill Rockstars. Support for the future of what comes from Merch Table. With over 15 years of experience in merchandising, screen printing, tour support, and online fulfillment, Merch Table partners with artists and labels looking to jumpstart their business. Visit merchtable.com to learn more and open a store today. On today's show, we talk to some people who are working to help other people gain access to studios in new ways, both as engineers and as musicians. It's all coming up on The Future of What. Support for the future of what comes from Sound Exchange. You're listening to the future of what. We're talking to Madeline Campbell. My guest today is Madeline Campbell. She is a studio and live sound engineer and the editor of Women in Sound Zine. Madeline, welcome to the future of what. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited that you're here, and I love it. I love having someone live in studio. It's so much more fun than talking on the phone. <laughs> <laughs> so, how did you get into sound engineering? Well, I started playing. Uh, like many people in a band in high school. And I remember the very rudimentary process of recording ourselves and just feeling so confidently about what we were doing. Like, man, we've, we've got to get this out into the world. Like, we are so good. And so that was my first time recording anything. And I was really taken with it, but I, it, but it wasn't like a light bulb moment for me. You know, I didn't immediately think like, I've got to do this for the rest of my life. <laughs> But I moved to Pittsburgh when I was 18 to go to music school, and I studied cello. And in school, I started taking some audio classes as well, and then landed an internship with a studio in Pittsburgh at some point in college and just kind of dove in the deep end. I was very underqualified, very inexperienced, but... They took me on and I started piecing things together and and learning more and more. And then after a few years, started working independently. Cool. Yeah. Yeah. And then you're sort of new to live sound, right? You started doing live sound last year. Yeah. I started doing live sound a few years ago at a small but really mighty venue in Pittsburgh called Brillo Box. And they were looking for another person to take on live sound there. And there's a really remarkable woman, Alexis Icon, based in Pittsburgh, who's been a huge part of the electronic music scene there for many years. And she was really the one to kind of take me under her wing. And I thought, you know, I can't do this. This is totally different than than the studio. And I've never used a digital board before. But luckily, she was there assuring me and teaching me everything that she knew. So started working in some smaller venues in Pittsburgh and then started touring last year for the first time. And you're through Portland today because you're on mm-hmm. tour with Shamir. Yes. Awesome artist Shamir. We've had him on the show. I love Shamir so Amazing. dearly. Yes. Yeah. And so how is it going? I mean, you sort of, I can only imagine that doing live front of house, which is what you're doing mm-hmm. for the first time must be terrifying. It is. It, it was. It was. <laughs> it's not not as terrifying anymore, but the first big tour I did was started out in Seattle last year and we were at Numos, a really great venue 
there. And I was just telling someone in the band yesterday, I don't remember in the last few years feeling as nervous as I had <laughs> leading up to that show. It was really scary, but it's going really well. I think with each tour, I'm presented with new challenges and new opportunities to grow and expand my knowledge. I journal very intensely after each sound check and each show. Oh, I'm, wow. a, I'm a big journaler, so that's that's helped a lot. But yeah, it's it's going really well. And I've been really lucky to work with some awesome house production crews that have helped me quite a lot. And I've been really lucky that every artist I've worked with so far, every band that I've worked with has been great. So it's a totally different practice than being in the studio. And it's I found a lot of joy in being an active part of the show. You know, it's one thing to be in the studio setting and and to be able to spend weeks or months with an album and make all of these numerous tweaks and and mix edits. But I really love in doing front of house that I'm able to be an active part of the band's show. And then once the show's over, you know, it's done. Go home. Right. Yeah. Right. You leave it all on the floor and exactly. walk away. Yeah. And that's it. Yeah. I don't know if people have really thought about this or thought it through, but one of the reasons, you know, we talk about producers and engineers being artists in their own right, you know, is that they are working for the most part in a studio that is their own studio with equipment that's their own equipment. They know what things sound like. They've got a variety. I mean, if you ever read like Sylvia Massey or any of these people, they've just got these devices that they love to play with. It's yeah. like they know, they know they can get a certain type of compression from this thing or whatever. Mm-hmm. But front of house sounds really scary because you're dealing with brand new equipment every night that you've never seen before. Yeah. Yeah. So that sounds dealing with brand new equipment in a brand new space. Right. Every night. So I think my first tour that I did really was a kind of a crash course in a lot of different consoles that you'll see across the United States. And even in just about a year or so, I've really become much more familiar with the ins and outs of the various boards. And I kind of I realized very quickly, in addition to learning a lot about the different boards, I've really figured out much more of what to listen for in a sound check Mm. because not only are you you know is every venue different but it sounds different empty versus filled with hundreds of bodies so that's always been such a challenge about doing the live sound check at a show right Mm -hmm. is that you it sounds one way when you sound check and then three hours later when you get on stage and there's 200 people in there it's and everyone's sweating totally totally (laughs) totally different yeah and i i really like to walk around the room a little bit during the first couple songs but sometimes that's not possible we 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 played a show at rickshaw stop in san francisco the other day and it was a big crowd and i was kind of stuck where i was i couldn't really couldn't really do what i normally do and walk around the room a little bit but yeah i've it's a big it's i've learned a lot in, in a mm-hmm. short amount of time. No doubt. Mm-hmm. And you have a lot of constituents, too, when you're doing front of house, because you've got not only do you want the crowd to hear everything properly, but you have to make the band happy. Oh, yeah. And, you know, you don't want to get off, <laughs> have them come off stage and be like, what? I couldn't hear anything. Yeah. Depending on the venue, I've done I've done tours already where there are dedicated monitor engineers at every venue. Oh, that's nice. Which is really wonderful. But it's, it's healthy to do front of house and monitors from the same board because you really again you just learn quickly how to identify what frequencies are are causing that feedback and and I think also I've just been blessed that that the artists that I've worked with are all relatively very low maintenance very easygoing and chilled out but I do have I do have many friends who tour globally as front of house and 
they have some pretty funny stories. Yeah. Have you ever had like on any of the tours in the last year that you've been at, have you ever just walked into a venue and had just like a total disaster or like something that just didn't work at all or feedback you couldn't get rid of or any of those horror stories? I <laughs> I did a tour with the band Waxahachie in November and it was actually at a Pittsburgh show where it was a venue that I'm very familiar with because I'm from Pittsburgh and the weirdest thing happened where a mute button for one of the singers got like stuck in place <laughs> and Allison Crutchfield, the one of the singers in Waxahachie and guitarist, and she, her, her vocal mic was muted and I didn't know what to do. So I pulled a bobby pin out of my hair and just started like digging it out from under the board and it somehow worked, but, <laughs> but you kind of just like have to become resourceful like yeah. that. I've definitely had my fair share of feedback squeals. But yeah, I, I like to take a lot of time and sound check to, to do whatever I can to prevent all of those wow. things. Yeah. Oh my gosh. I love that. Yeah. I like the hairpin story. That's very sort of Trixie Belden girl detective. Like, <laughs> just yeah, do that. Yeah, that was, I was so glad I had one on my head because I really don't know what else I would have done in that moment. Yeah. yeah, but it did work. So amazing. if you're ever on a Midas M32, just <laughs> <laughs> Carry some bobby pins Get with you. Bobby pin. yeah, yeah, well, put it in the kit, right? Yeah, like, that's absolutely. A good thing to have. <laughs> oh my God.
That was Without Applause by Horse Feathers. If you're enjoying this program, please subscribe to our show on your favorite podcast platform and leave us a review. Follow us on Twitter at KRSFOW and subscribe to our newsletter to find out what's coming up next. You're listening to The Future of What? We're talking to Madeline Campbell. So let's talk a little bit about your studio at home, Mm -hmm. which is called Accessible Recording. Mm -hmm. One of the things that's really cool about it, in case anyone wants to go to AccessibleRecording.com, is that you offer sliding scale payment plans and you provide free childcare. Ah, yeah, that's amazing. What a great idea. I had to think a lot about what the word accessible means to me. And I'm, it's something I'm still thinking about all the time. And I worked at a, at a large studio for several years and realized pretty quickly that the, the people that I love and care about, a lot of bands in Pittsburgh, just aren't on a large studio budget. And I would be the same way. I'm not living a large studio budget life. And so I set out to create a space of my own and it's definitely a work in progress but it's been open um, for almost a year now so to backtrack a little bit as I was thinking about what kind of environment I wanted to facilitate for my recording studio the first word that came to mind was accessible and accessibility because I had worked in a lot of situations that were previously very inaccessible to a lot of people that I wanted to work with. So I think the the biggest things for me are being able to financially meet people where they're at, which is a fine line too, because I have bills to pay and want to grow and expand. So that's a line that I'm, I'm figuring out as I go along and offering payment plans. And then I think it, a space to be fully accessible needs to be accessible to, to children and to people with children. So I actually just had my first request for childcare from an artist, which was pretty exciting. Yeah, there is a volunteer childcare collective in Pittsburgh that provides free childcare for a lot of different events and in different spaces. So, yeah, I'm I'm glad that there are people there who exist to to make different spaces and events more accessible. That's in that way, awesome. I mean, I personally am a proponent of free childcare, like across the board for everyone mm-hmm. all the time. And Absolutely. I think like there should just be amazing places where you can drop your kid off and know they'll be safe. Yeah. You know, I mean, I had that this weekend. I ended up paying like $200 for a babysitter because I needed my husband and I needed to be somewhere. Oh my gosh. Yeah. For we needed to be away for like eight hours from our house. And we, you know, we try to pay a really decent wage. We're not going to pay somebody five bucks an hour or something. Yeah. So, you know, it ends up being incredibly pricey to do that. And I was like, someone should just create an organization that does safe childcare for anyone who needs it to just drop them off for an hour, two hours or eight hours, unfortunately, if that's necessary, you know. Absolutely. Yeah. I don't know how people. Yeah. And and especially for people who are, you know, in creative fields like there. I don't know. I've quickly realized like there really isn't a weekend like there's not a regular schedule. Well, right. So exactly. It changes yeah. all the time. So, yeah, I'm not a parent. But my hope is that people without kids could maybe find ways to step it up for for people with kids. Yeah, exactly. That would be nice. So let's talk a little bit about your zine, Women Mm -hmm. in Sound. So what gave you the inclination to start that? A couple things. After I had been working in the studio setting for a few years, I was really desperate to connect with other women in the field. And there's there's a conversation that seems to be going around quite a lot. I've seen a lot of articles with headlines along the lines of like, why are there so few women in audio? Why are there so few women in the field? 
And I'd, I'd really like to shift that conversation to pay more attention to the women who are here. There are many. There have been for a long time. So I really wanted to create a platform for women and queer folks in all areas of live sound and recorded sound and, and the many different roles to be able to share their stories and to talk about their experiences and creative processes and to also have this platform be accessible to people who haven't been in pro audio for 30 years. There's a lot of great recording publications in the world. And, you know, as an audio engineer, I still am constantly Googling what words mean and Googling different terms. And so I wanted something that everyone who was interested in sound could benefit from and not just people with really advanced knowledge of electronics and pro audio systems and and gear. So Yeah. Do you feel like gear is sometimes like a, a barrier to entry for people, just like knowledge of gear and sort of all the terminology? Absolutely. I think also gear is weirdly sexualized a lot in the audio industry. Oh, that's interesting. It's so it's so strange to me. The largest audio forum, like message board in the world is called gearsluts.com. And they have different threads like hot slut of the week or, you know, when people are there talking about like their new gear that they found. And when I say people, I mean men. Men, right? Mostly men. Yeah. It's so weird to me and makes me so uncomfortable that I'd almost rather just like not have an answer to my question than scour gearsluts.com for something that may or may not be true. But yeah, so I think gear is a barrier in in a lot of ways. I mean, it's expensive. Yeah. You know, I've been building a studio on a relatively very small budget. And so I've had to strategize a lot. And I'm really proud of what I've done so far. But there are definitely times when, you know, I I, I know that if, if someone dropped $100,000 in my hands, I could use it up in a few minutes. You know, right. here is incredibly expensive. So there's a financial barrier. There's a lot of pre-assumed knowledge surrounding gear. You know, how are you supposed to make your first gear purchase if you're not really sure what things do? Right. So in my studio, I've been really happy to pair with the public library in Pittsburgh to host some Skillshares to kind of break things down, kind of a, a what's what in the recording studio, kind of a primer into starting to record yourself or maybe other people. So yeah, there's the financial barrier, there's the knowledge barrier. In, in many ways, it's so great that so much information exists on the internet, but in other ways, it's really repulsive. <laughs> so yeah, gear can be a tough one. So what would your advice be to young women who are thinking of getting into audio engineering in general? I would say reach out to as many people around you that are involved as, as you can on any level of the field. I really have been so lucky to be you know, for the first six years of my career to really have been guided by women in all areas of the field. There are so many wonderful women doing great work in all different roles in the studio and in live sound. That being said, you don't have to learn from women, but there are a lot doing great work. So my biggest piece of advice would just be to to reach out, do some research, figure out who's in your area, get in touch. It never hurts to get in touch. In, especially in, in live sound and in venue settings, people are always looking for substitutes. You know, sometimes the timing works out well where different engineers are looking for assistants or interns. And I would start small. 
too. You know, buy a few microphones of your own. Look into some different interfaces in your price range. Things really can be done on a smaller budget now compared to recording sound 30 or 40 years ago. So That's a good point. Yeah. You have a quote in your letter from the editor in the last issue, which I really liked. You have to be confident while building your competence. Oh, yeah. That's from Susan Rogers. Yeah, that one stuck with me. I really like that. I think that's important because I think that's hard for especially young women. You know, if you know very little about gear, you're not really, you know, you don't have the terminology down, but you're interested and you're excited to learn, (laughs) you know, to go forward in a situation and just say, like, you know, be confident, even though you don't know everything. Absolutely. Yeah. I think touring, especially over the last year, has been really humbling in that way. It's been a good reminder to be honest, you know, to strike the balance between knowing the limitations of what you're able to do and also trying to push forward and grow and expand and challenge yourself. But to go back to your last question, that's another thing that I wish I could go back and tell myself five years ago or 10 years ago is to to just be confident. There's no shame in being a beginner. Audio is can be a really competitive kind of strange industry in that way or there's you know I had a huge fear of asking questions or saying I don't know and it took me a long time to realize that this is not innate knowledge like the engineers who have been doing this for decades are still learning with every session and and technology is constantly changing so I would really encourage beginners especially to fearlessly ask questions it has really helped me grow a lot since I taught myself that it's okay to ask. Well, on that note, Madeline Campbell is a sound engineer. Madeline, thanks so much for being with us on The Future of What today. Thank you so much for having me.
That was Excuse Generator by Lithix. You're listening to The Future of What? After the show, take a moment to leave us a review wherever you get your podcasts. It helps people find the show, and we love hearing from you. When Kill Rockstars was looking for someone to take over our fulfillment operation, Merch Table stepped up to do the heavy lifting, moving our entire stock to their warehouse and helping us create merch our fans love. With Merch Table's support, we've been able to focus on the music and artists that matter to us. KRS loves Merch Table. See what they can do for your business at merchtable.com. You're listening to The Future of What? We're talking to Terry Winston. My guest today is Terry Winston, the founder and executive director of Women's Audio Mission. Terry, welcome to The Future of What? Thanks for having me. This is awesome. Yeah, I'm excited to talk to you. So on today's episode, we are talking about engineering and the changes in engineering in recent years and, and access to engineering and recording studios sort of on both sides of the soundboard, you know, for people who want to work inside the studio as either engineers or musicians. And, you know, one of the questions of access is obviously access for women. And you've been working in this field since 2003, I believe. Yes. Yeah, 15-year anniversary this year. (laughs) Congratulations. This is very exciting. Thank you. So what prompted you in 2003 to found the Women's Audio Mission? I was a professor at City College, and I was developing their sound recording arts program there. And City College is probably the most diverse college or school, I think, in the country. I've never experienced anything like it. So they uh, were very concerned that there were a great lack of women in the classes. And so I was kind of tasked with that. And uh, over the course of a couple of years, we managed to get the enrollment there up over 50% at about 53%. And so a lot of the schools wanted to know how that was done. And instead of me going all over the place and talking about that, I thought it would be a good to put all those best practices into one place. And so that was kind of the genesis of Women's Audio Mission was, here's how it's done. It's not that hard. But it is difficult if not everybody necessarily wants to do that. So that's the million-dollar question there. So tell us a little bit about what you guys do. I see that you offer classes, and they are free to WAM members. Is that correct? So the the classes for girls, those are free. The ones for adults are very, very low cost, i.e. we don't make any money on them. So we have both. Gotcha. Adults and kids. And then you also have school programs. You partner with schools. Yes, that's how we serve the girls. We partner with about 25 different school partners. We specifically focus on Title I or or underserved schools. They're serving primarily low-income kids. I think last year we trained over 1,200 middle and high school girls. 96% were low-income, 91% girls of color. So that became our big focus. It just really took off. Like We're still not meeting demand. We opened up another location in Oakland to help serve those girls. And then we also train about 350, 400 women every year. So between the two, we're kind of busy. Yeah. And then in addition to that, we run the only uh, professional recording studio in the world built and run by women. So we're doing sessions in here kind of 24-7. So that's where our women graduates end up working in the studio. So that's kind of the arc of the story. That's awesome. And I noticed on your website, you have a job board as well so that people can, you know, look farther afield once they've gotten some qualifications and experience. Yes, we absolutely. So we've placed over 600, I think 650 women in careers 
so far. So that, you know, we're heavy into tech here. So there's a lot of audio in tech that people don't think about. So we've placed a lot of people at Google and Facebook and electronic arts in the game industry. A lot of folks, I think we have maybe over 20 young women that we've placed at Dolby, Mm. Pandora. And then, of course, most of the venues in the Bay Area probably have one of our women working there. Wow. Well, that is really impressive. That's great for 15 years of work. Tell me what it's like when you go into a school and you ha- you meet these little girls who had probably have never thought of engineering or recording or studio work at all as like a possibility. What happens with those kids? I mean, do they just get so excited about like what they're hearing and what they're seeing and what they're learning how to do? Yeah, it's really, it's, I kind of forget because I, you know, I'm not in those classrooms as often as I used to be. And it happened to me the other day where I walked in and I, I saw, you know, this is, it's an after school program. So, you know, we have to make it fun. It was really interesting to me to see just how happy they are. And I, and, you know, I was like, why are they so happy? They're making podcasts. You know, it's not, <laughs> it's not like that exciting. You know, I mean, it is, but it's, but then I just realized, oh, okay, this is a pretty rare opportunity that they have a space that's for them only. Yeah, so it's a class that's run by women. It's for girls. They can say and do whatever they want. You know, it's kind of like they don't have that. I mean, it's like if you think about it, I mean, we came into being because there's less than all the messages and the sounds and the media and all that stuff that you hear every day. You know, less than 5% women are working on those messages. So these kids, these girls, they're just not getting any messages that are going to, you know, support them, amplify their voices, make them feel like they should be heard. So I think it's such a rare thing for them to be in a room with all these young women role models and mentors and being told like, hey, you know, your voice matters. We want to hear your voice, you know, on the radio, on television, in a film, in in a band, you know, wherever that media gets distributed, we want to hear your voice. And that's just a really, I think, it's a concept they're not hearing very often. So I think that's what, what... makes it really exciting for me to see that. Like I just, it, it's better than caffeine. It's awesome. <laughs> what do you think, I mean, culturally, because part of me is, you know, very enthusiastic about the work that you guys do and, and other people are doing. And part of me is just really kind of annoyed because, you know, I'm in my forties. I started playing in bands when I was 19 And I feel like we're still having the same conversation. You know what I mean? It's like there's just not enough representation of women. And I, it's so, it can be really frustrating. It's like, wow, I can't believe we're still having this conversation. But if you look at it culturally from a cultural standpoint, it kind of makes sense because it's hard to get excited about something or even know that there's a place for you in a field when you never see that field. You never see anyone doing that that looks like you. Oh, I can't believe we're still having this conversation. (laughs) It's shocking to me. It's very shocking to me that, yeah, I just recently came to the conclusion that, you know, maybe you haven't considered that not everybody wants to change it. Right. You know, that didn't cross my mind until recently and I'm old. So I was like, what is going on? Why didn't you even think of that? But there are people that they, they don't want the voices of women and girls amplified. They don't want to hear those things. They don't want its power. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's what we tell the girls like, Hey, how powerful is that? Your voice is on the internet right now. And they're like, Whoa, you know, this is crazy. I can play this for my mom. You know, it's like, yes, you can play this for your family. Like that's power. So yeah, I can't believe it either. I, I, but if you think about all of the stuff that we consume every day that has sound on it and the fact that there are no women at the table making those decisions about content, Mm -hmm. 
Mm. Yeah. Then, then you realize you're like, oh, that's why all this crazy stuff gets said. Right. You, you know, things that we can't believe. It's like, oh, well, there wasn't a woman there to go. <laughs> hey, you know what, you guys, this might not be a good idea right. to say that. There's nobody there. Right, right. Especially when it comes to, you know, issues about women, it's when there's no women <laughs> present. It's, well, you're right. It's very when interesting. You that, you're just like, what is going on? Like, why didn't they think of these things? But yes, that's a longer conversation. Definitely. Well, I mean, sort of to get back to that a little bit, back when I was still an anthropologist, which was my previous life, I did a study at an engineering school about, you know, why it is that we have so few American kids going into engineering just overall. You know, the vast majority of kids at engineering schools are foreign, are, are from other countries. And ultimately, after I'd been doing that project for several months, I came to the conclusion that that we just, what we really need to do is instead of like getting a big grant to study why... We need to take that grant money and, like, give it to Wyden and Kennedy or somebody and, like, let them do a PR campaign, like an advertising campaign, so the kids just understand what engineering is. Because I think one of the big reasons that people don't go into it is they actually have no clue what it is. And the kids that I interviewed uniformly said that, like, they either had a parent who was an engineer, a friend of the family who was an engineer, or they had a teacher who took them aside and said, hey, you have aptitude. Have you considered engineering? as a field. So it's like you needed to have that personal connection. And I think it's real interesting with, you know, women in recording studios and music and in, you know, the creative arts in general, you know, you need that personal connection, that hands-on moment where you're like, this isn't scary. It's a thing you can do, <laughs> you know? Oh, yeah. Well, funny, that's the story for me is that uh, my father's an engineer and I'm an electrical engineer. So I, in the olden days, there were no recording schools. Right. Of course. You know, so I was, in a, I was in a punk band and I'm in college and, you know, the only related thing for me with the technology that I knew how to use was electrical engineering. But, I mean, Women's Audio Mission was basically my way of recreating the support I got from my father because I grew up in his lab. That was like my playpen, which I thought was normal. I thought everybody had that. Right. And then I realized, oh, this is, you know, he was kind of a freak for taking me into these labs all the time like my neighbors would actually complain and say you know that's not the right way to raise your daughter <laughs> and he he was kind of an eccentric so he was like what this is my blood like she can go in there so i mean women's audio mission is a way to, to kind of recreate that that place where you get exposed to all these careers that you don't know about and you don't know what they involve and that it gives you this sense of endless possibilities mm -hmm. like oh i could tinker with that or try that or break that or you know whatever it is to figure these things out and then to realize that you know, the broader scope of engineering is just solving problems creatively. So it's just a creative way to solve problems. And I think once they see, wow, we can do that, you can solve problems with music. You know, whatever the message you choose, that can hopefully solve the problems that are important to you. Making a podcast is another way to solve a problem if you bring those issues forward to people. So I think... Then they kind of wrap their heads around it. And then, of course, we're exposing them to code and electronics and things like that. But then they, they see, like, oh, maybe writing code to make these sounds, the, the synthesizer, for instance, maybe that isn't just for an, a nerdy white guy. Mm -hmm. You know, maybe I, I just did it and this whole room just did it and we had fun. And so maybe this isn't, like, not cool. Maybe this is okay. 
So it's it's totally interesting. You can do, it's just watching like how they approach things is, has been really eye opening for all of us. Definitely. So when a girl goes through your program and then goes to work at your studio, is there like an internship phase first, or do you have you hired some people outright? How does that work? We do have a really strong internship program. So we actually had to kind of whittle it down because we were try- taking so many mm-hmm. that we just couldn't manage it. But we we take anywhere between twelve and fifteen young women every year as interns. And some of them end up working here. Some of them we place, like I said, in, in jobs elsewhere. We do have some engineers that come from the outside, but pretty rarely. They generally start with us. Like all of our instructors for the girls definitely started at women. Actually, all of our program employees started as an intern or a student at Women's Audio Mission. Wow. So we we definitely love to hire from within because mm-hmm. it's just part of our mission and but it also it shows that's the faith we have in our our training that the, these are going to be the best trained folks that came out of our program so but there is a really strong internship program and, and we are now at a point because we're training so many middle school girls that we have to create a high school internship program to <laughs> take all of these kids that have taken so many classes, you know, they've been with us for two, three years, and they're like, why can't we be an intern? Wow. And so we were like, well, you know what? <laughs> You're probably qualified at this point. So we don't, we, we're really trying to get funding to do that. That's our kind of our next thing. So yeah, there's a lot of balls in the air right now. That's exciting. Well, Terry Winston, thank you so much for being with us today on The Future of What. I really enjoyed talking to you. Me as well. This was fabulous. Thanks for having me. Sit down there in your favorite chair Pour yourself some wine Sit down there in your favorite chair And pour yourself some wine Take up your coat and stay a while You know all those cliché pleasantries Take up your coat and your hat and stay a while Spend some time with me I've got to get to know you better I wish I knew myself Crashing down The water's rising The air is thin You know there's fire on the ground It's stargazers are Stargazers are Stargazers are blind
Collect your things and pack your bags Come on and stay with me Collect your things and pack your bags Baby, come on and live with me Take up your coat and your hat and stay a while You know all those cliché pleasantries Take up your coat and your hat and stay a while Spend some time with me I've got to get to know you better I wish I knew myself better Yeah, the storm is blowing Leaves around, trees are crashing down The water's rising, the air is thin You know that fire on the ground It's dark, was Stargazers Are Blind by Owen McCarthy. If you're enjoying this program, please subscribe to our show on your favorite podcast platform and leave us a review. Follow us on Twitter at KRSFOW and subscribe to our newsletter to find out what's coming up next. You're listening to The Future of What. We're talking to Andrew Jones. Andrew, welcome to The Future of What. Thank you for having me. I'm excited to be here. Yay, us too. So our episode today is about recording engineers and sort of the accessibility of studios to people. I mean, I feel like there's been a lot of talk lately about, you know, how changes in technology have made recording so much easier because people can record at home. But even that sort of discounts the existence of recording studios and the fact that a lot of people are able to start their own recording studio and do start their own recording studio but also like just what that means about who can become an engineer and who is on the other side of the soundboard, you know, who can become an engineer, who can become a musician. Yeah. Has technology changed that for us? And so today we're kind of talking about 
those accessibility issues to both of those sides of the soundboard. And I wanted to talk to you because your website, on your website, you talk about offering studio availability to underrepresented emerging artists. And I wanted to talk to you about what that means to you. Yeah. To me, underrepresented right now in this context of Trump presidency means, you know, voices that are vulnerable and under attack and are trying to be silenced or diminished or even erased. Those voices and those communities, and I'm, you know, I'm talking about like people of color, LGBTQIA communities, women even, you know, they have historically had a difficult time in the music industry anyway. But now it seems like, and you know, this is definitely in the context of where I'm at in the country, that might be a scary proposition to enter into like a larger recording facility where you don't know someone's political leanings or how they're going to receive you and your message. You know, maybe they don't really care where you come from, but you might say something, you know, in a song or as you're describing what the song, you know, like the origin of your work or your persona as an artist, and that might sour the whole recording session. So my space, The Nest, is trying to offer more of a safe space where you can come in and be as I don't want to say progressive because, you know, maybe it's not so much of a progressive view, but you just expressing your view against, you know, contra to what is happening right now. And it's just going to be recorded to disc, I guess, because that's, you know, we're recording a hard disc. It's going to be recorded as honestly and as truthfully as you're going to deliver it. And there's not going to be anything getting in the way of that. So underrepresented to me is, you know, historically underrepresented and emerging, you know, typically I'm working with people on their first releases. I mean, I think that's really awesome to do that. I mean, it's to some extent, it's sort of like what's going on. A lot of people are putting signs in the windows of their businesses, you know, like this is a safe space or we don't discriminate or whatever. Right. I mean, I, it's it's interesting that we find ourselves in a time where we have to do that. But letting people know, I actually think that's quite important because there's been too much clearly, you know, we haven't done a good job of communicating in this country and there's been too much left unsaid you know, about who is welcome in various places. So I, I think that that's really great that you're putting that out there like that. Yeah. And, you know, you mentioning people putting up signs, you know, I've, I've been to Portland a few times in the last couple years and see those signs. And it's so foreign to me to see Black Lives Matter signs on people's lawns or in business storefronts. Here, there's none of that. I, I haven't seen that unless you go to Austin, you see more of that. But Denton, Dallas area, and even Dallas, which is, you know, a little bit more, more progressive politically, it, you don't really see that a whole lot. There are some like pocket neighborhoods where you do, but I mean, for the most part, especially in Denton, which is like a bright red county, there's nothing like that. So you kind of need to have those modes of communication and reaching out to those artists to be like, there is some place you can go where you will know that you feel okay, you know? Right. So let's talk a little bit about your path to engineering. Like, how did you come to engineering yourself in the course of your life? You know, looking back on it, I realized that I've been recording my life for my entire life, I, I would, you know, do like little DJ things when I was a kid and recorded like hanging out with my friends when I was a kid. And then when I became a musician, of course, I started recording myself. And then I started recording the bands I was in. And I started to do my own solo stuff after leaving some bands. You know, we moved to Texas and I totally left my community. So I started working on my own and I paid for my first album and was like, this costs too much money. I'm going to just invest the money into my own stuff and start like a home recording rig and just do myself. And then the election happened and I was like, I need to make my activism 
a little more mentally healthy for myself. So I need to spend more time in the studio and focus on my art, but also help others do theirs. So I started amassing more and more gear and, you know, widening my, my mic locker and doing the usual gear hoarding stuff. I subscribed to Tape Op and that changed my life. So yeah, so in the last couple of years is when I got like really, really serious about it and really quickly found a community of other artists who were looking for that kind of accessibility too. So I think it was just kind of the right time and place that all of this, you know, worked out that I was opening my own studio as well. So yeah, I mean, I came up playing music in Colorado, in Southern Colorado, and doing a lot of recording across the country there. I spent a lot of time in LA, you know, learned a lot about recording by being in studios and working as an artist and with producers in that capacity. And then, yeah, like I said, in the last couple of years, really brought it on myself to teach myself engineering and all of that stuff. It's insane. Like, I, I, I don't know how I could have done it if I decided to do this maybe even 10 years ago. All the resources that are available, that I was able to teach myself a ton of stuff. Like on the internet resources, stuff like that? Yeah. Yeah. Right. Wow, that's great. Yeah, I mean, that's that's part of that accessibility thing that we're talking about today is just, you know, there's information out there, obviously. I mean, Tape Up Magazine, everyone talks about that being a great resource mm-hmm. and obviously stuff on the internet. And then what about in terms of financial, are things cheaper now? Like what about gear? Is it cheaper? Is it more expensive? Does it depend on what you're talking about? It feels like it's getting cheaper like right now as we speak because when I started collecting things and, you know, buying up stuff, I had like a certain standard that I wanted to reach sonically. So I was like, okay, I'm going to budget this much, but I can't afford like crazy stuff like a Bach 251 or anything like that. So I started buying what I wanted to get. And then I started seeing more brands that kind of clone stuff like uh, warm is a really popular company i don't own any of their stuff so like i'm not trying to advertise for them but a lot of people know them as this company that offers legendary models of gear for much cheaper there's another company out of south america that's doing the same thing so you see more companies like that emerging that are offering these sort of like legacy products that are you know within the two thousand plus dollars worth of stuff and they're offering it for like five hundred dollars now so stuff is getting way cheaper And that's just outboard stuff. Like if you want to get the software emulations of stuff, you're going to pay even less for that kind of stuff. And you're not having to occupy a lot of real estate, you know, like if you buy racks and racks of outboard gear, it's a lot of money, but you're also taking up a ton of space. So if you just get all these plugins and emulations, which sound just as good, if not like dead on to a lot of the analog and digital outboard gear, you're saving a ton of money and space. So you can, and this is kind of how my setup is that I get to dedicate more of an open space to artists because I'm not plugging up a lot of the real estate within my recording studio with gear, which kind of hurts because I mean, you know, I fetishize gear like anybody <laughs> else does. But yeah, it's a lot easier for sure now than it was, when, you know, even when I just started getting serious about it. So how do you balance, you know, when you're running a recording studio, you have to make money to eat, obviously, but how do you balance being accessible to people who maybe are not able to pay as much as some other people with making a living? (laughs) Sure, yeah. And this is where my activism, I guess, gets a little more radical, that this is not radical that I have a day job, right? Which I consider more my side gig, because while I'm at my day job, And I think this is where my politics get a little bit more radical. I'm doing like the bare minimum of work that I can without getting fired. So I can study audio recording. And the more stories that I've read, like via tape op and, you know, other online articles, I've discovered this is a way 
some of my favorite engineers also kind of got their start. Kurt Ballou got City Studios. He worked in the biology field, I think it was. Don't quote me on that. But, you know, he was working and spending a lot of time kind of reading up on his own interest in, in audio. And then when he got laid off, then he just kind of went into it on his own. So I'm trying not to get laid off so I can keep my overhead um, <laughs> low and, you know, keep charging people less so they can create their art however they want to and spend as much time as they want to, which is, I think, the more important aspect of it. Like I could charge them as little as I want and then, you know, get them in and get them out in like a weekend or something. But I kind of want to elevate their voices or, you know, help elevate their voices. So if they want to be associated with acts who have really high production value, then we can take the time to get there. So, okay, so I, I also run the studio out of my home and that really helps keep costs low so I don't have to pay rent on another place. Right. So it's sort of in the style of like Bradwood Seagrass Studios where, you know, this is attached to my home and it's very hi-fi if you want it to be. And I'm really eating the cost. But this is the year that I want to kind of start making a living as, you know, a working engineer and, you know, make a life as a career artist. So I'm kind of wrestling with how I'm going to balance that of giving people as much time and space as I can while thinking about my own well-being. Yeah, it's an important work-life balance. That's what they call that. <laughs> yes, definitely. Yeah. And so, yeah, my day job work is kind of intruding on everything else that I'm doing as an engineer, but I'm considering it right now as a kind of like musical citizenship that this is my way of giving back to the community and being an activist in that, you know, this is how I can help right now. Fantastic. Well, Andrew Jones, thanks for what you're doing. And thanks so much for being with us today on The Future of What? Of course. Thank you so much for having me. And that's our show. The music we played today was used by permission. You heard Horse Feathers, Lithics, Owen McCarthy, and of course, our theme song, Mind Your Own Business by the Delta Five. Subscribe to our podcast and leave us a review. For more info on our shows, check out our website at killrockstars.com slash the future of what and sign up for our newsletter. Our program was engineered by Brent Asbury at Beta Petrol and is produced by Will Watts and Anna McLean. I'm Portia Sabin, president of Kill Rock Stars. See you next week.